Welcome to the Basto Podcast, conversations with big thinkers about the big questions in education and leadership today. I'm Angela Scafidi. Dr. Simon Breakspear is a researcher, advisor and speaker on educational leadership, policy and change. He's the founder and executive director of Agile Schools. They help school and system leaders make meaningful progress in a complex and dynamic environment. As research fellow at the Gonski Institute for Education at the University of New South Wales, Simon's focused on supporting school leadership development at scale. In his speaking and advisory roles, Simon has worked with more than 100,000 educators across 10 countries. He is also the creator of Learning Sprints, an open source approach to professional learning used by educators across the world to enhance their expertise and their impact. So Simon, you've clearly had a really interesting journey. How did you get to where you are now? How did you get to where you are today? Well, not by planning it, that's for sure. Uh, Look, to be honest, I left school and I knew I wanted to have an impact. I knew I wanted to uh, use uh, research and scientific knowledge to try to make an impact on the planet. And I thought I was going to do that in medicine, to be honest. And when I finished high school, I went off and I uh, was enrolled in... um, a medicine degree at University of New South Wales. And it was towards the end of that year that maybe my idealistic self sort of said, look, there's a whole bunch of people who want to be here and to do this work and I'm interested in health. But in the end, once a person gets healthy, they've got to learn how to live and to develop and to be in community. And I started to think, you know, maybe the 21st century education was the place, even more than health, to have that impact. And I remember I went home and I, I told mum and dad, oh, just letting you know, um, uh, you know how, you know, I'm in med school and you're kind of happy about that. I'm not doing that anymore. And they said, oh, you're going to do law like your brother. I said, no, I'm going to be a teacher. And it was kind of an interesting time, actually, because I remember going back to my old school and they said to me, so I'm, oh, are you sure? You haven't signed anything yet, have you? Uh, and even at the university, they seemed, it was a bit strange for them. And I really learnt a lot at that time, the way that we undervalue. Uh, the role of educators, the work of the school system, because it seemed strange at that time to drop out of med school to do teaching. Although to do the reverse, someone might have been, oh, that's wonderful. And so I I really wanted to pursue impact. And so I taught for a few years and then I got interested in how research could impact practice. And I thought, oh, well, look, maybe I should go and chase this down. And and I got an opportunity to go and study overseas. And uh, I said to my wife, look, do you want to take a break from your primary school job? And she said, all right, just one year. And we took off for a year. And then I said, how about a couple more? I've kind of gone to this doctoral program. And I was the worst doctoral student ever at Cambridge because I never turned up. Uh, I think I broke all the residency requirements because I didn't really want to do a doctorate. I just wanted to have an excuse to learn as much as possible about global education, meet interesting people, think about new approaches to have that impact. And so at that point, I probably thought, I'll do my doctorate and I'll go back and try to be a principal. Uh, and it was starting to come across the work of people like Andy Hargraves, Michael Fullen, uh, uh, Michael Barber, where I started to say, hey, there's some people who are serving the profession and it's in a way I didn't know you could do. Uh, and it's a way of trying to synthesize the research base and to turn that stuff and the global insights into practical things that help real people on the ground. And it was around that time that I started to say, well, look, maybe I won't rush straight back into practice post-research. What I'll do is try to craft the capacity to um, play the best role I can think of to keep on task with the original intent of why I left med school, which is to impact human lives through the education system. And that's kind of how I'm doing what I'm doing now. So uh, it, it wasn't exactly by 
design. Uh, but bit by bit, I think as I've pursued that desired impact, I found a place that, at least in this stage, it's a platform by which I'm saying I'm having an impact, I'm supporting educators, and I think I found a unique way to do that. So, Simon, the term agile is thrown around a lot these days. How do you define agile leadership and what are the key strengths of the approach? Yeah, well, I guess agile is about being nimble, responsive, flexible. And so when we apply it to education leadership, we're talking about leaders who have the capacity to intelligently adapt and respond through the change journey in order to get to a final impact. And really, I think the benefit is school leaders that have been effective for decades have known they've got to be flexible and responsive. And really, in some ways, agile is just giving language to what great school leaders have done for a very long time. And that is they plan well and they think clearly about the impact they want to have. But when they get into the complexity of school life, they're willing to adjust and adapt, not to jump from one thing to another, but to find a way to get to their intended impact. So what first inspired you to apply agile processes in the education sector? Well, look, I'm a former teacher, high school teacher, spent some time in educational research, and it was some accidental trips to Silicon Valley where I was engaging in education technology, where I started to realise that the teams were using certain processes and engaging together to try to solve complex problems. And at the time that I was starting to look at what was going on in the technology sector, I started to realise, well, the work I was doing with school teams was also about complexity, how we could team in new ways, how we could sort of tackle ambiguity and be able to make progress even when the path wasn't clear. And that's when I started to get interested about how we could not so much wholesale brings ideas from outside of education inside education, but learn from this approach that was first, of course, being taken up in software and then a whole range of other teams learn from that as a way that educators could also respond to complexity in a way that was appropriate for our sector. Very interesting. So how important is the human factor in leading meaningful and effective change? So pretty much everything that matters in educational change is the human stuff. Uh, A lot of the outcomes that we want to achieve in education systems are, of course, about human development and learning. It's the human stuff. Uh, When we're focusing on instructional leadership, we're focusing on helping our teacher colleagues develop higher expectations, new mindsets, new knowledge, uh, new skills. Uh, When we're engaging with parents, caregivers and community, again, we're about raising educational aspirations, partnering in new ways. Almost all the variance in improving student learner outcomes is actually to do with the people stuff. And this is, for me, where I see the great beauty in agile approaches. Because as educational leaders, we know that most of the complexity in educational change is about human complexity. And too many of our education improvement processes just try to ignore that complexity. Where I say, well, stop ignoring it, lean into that complexity, and therefore the right response to human complexity is to increase our leadership agility, to be able to get into the work, to learn, to seek out feedback from the people this is actually impacting, and then to take that feedback on board to create a new iteration of the change we're trying to lead. What techniques do Agile leaders use to create clear and strategic plans for improvement, particularly when they're working, obviously, in complex environments? Can I just say, I'm a little bit sceptical of putting any word in front of leadership, and I both love Agile leadership, and I'm incredibly sceptical of here I am adding more adjectival leadership, you know. Uh, And so, in some ways, when I describe this, I'm not trying to describe something that's utterly different to what we've seen before. I had one principal come up to me after a program. She said, look, I'm a seasoned professional. I've been in this game for a long time. I've always been agile. The one thing I know when I get into the car in the morning as a principal, 
is that I've got a plan for the day. And by the time I get in the car when it's dark again in the evening, I will have had an impact, but it won't have been exactly what I planned to do. We've got to stay agile. So I want to say, in some ways, um, whether you call it agile leadership or not, I'm really talking about adopting a set of values uh, and a certain type of approach, an agile way to lead through that human complexity. So I reckon there's sort of three parts of adopting a more agile way of leading. Uh, the first one I talk about is about impact thinking, about getting much clearer and sharper about our desired pathways towards impact. Secondly, it's about iterative action. So once we've actually got really clear about what we hope to occur, uh, clear about what we're going to do and uh, what we hope to see, then we've got to get into the world. Uh, we've got to avoid analysis paralysis, thinking we'll get the answer by just doing more planning and realise that the world's too complex for that. We've got to get into the, world, the work uh, through iterative action, rapid cycles, getting feedback and seeing what's working. And then lastly, I think the agile approach is about responsive teamwork. If the world is complex, it's too much for instructional leadership superheroes. We need leaders who are able to team with others to be able to do this work, uh, really being bounded by a set of shared values and a deep sense of psychological safety, that this is complex work. And if it doesn't work the first time, it's not because anyone's uh, not trying hard enough. It's because the work's hard. And we've got to have that safety to be able to say, it didn't work this time, but let's go have another go and another go until we get to that impact. So you said there are three critical questions that every initiative should have an answer to. Could we talk about what these questions are and why you think they're so important? So agile leadership is about taking action. It is about avoiding analysis paralysis, having a bias towards action, saying all the interesting learning will come from learning by doing. But I've got to be careful in saying that we don't want to take action until we at least have a first hunch or a hypothesis about what change we're trying to create. And I think a lot of educators would say that um, they're experiencing change fatigue. There's a sense where they're overloaded, they're overworked, and they're moving from scepticism to cynicism around educational change. As though it's almost change for change's sake, another leader who's been to a conference and got inspired and, hey, here's a solution that's looking for a problem and we should just do it. So whilst I'm a big fan of taking action, part of an agile approach is to minimise the work, to focus on a few things. And I have just three basic questions that I think are the gateway before you're allowed to get into the work. So the first one is, uh, what are we trying to achieve? Very simple, I know, but what are we trying to achieve? Secondly, how are we trying to do it? And thirdly, how would we know our change is actually leading to an improvement? And they're very simple questions. But often I find that people with 20-page improvement plans can't give me the answer to those three questions on a post-it note. Too often we get caught up in long plans, detailed thinking, um, but actually it's not clear about what we're trying to do, how we're trying to do it, and how we would know our change is actually leading to improvement. And if we can get a simple first-cut answer to those questions, I think we've got license to both use the professional time of others and start to engage in a small way to test out that idea in the real world. So what do you see as the main challenge to educational change in Victoria and how would this agile approach help? Well, I don't want to overstate it, but one of the biggest challenges is you're doing so well. Here in uh, Victoria, you led the world in educational leadership development. Lots of centres all around the world now are trying to set up a leadership centre. Uh, Basto's been doing this for a decade. Uh, areas of teacher practice, uh, giving schools some autonomy to solve local problems. Uh, Victoria actually has done a lot of the things that other systems are only just getting around to starting to do. 
And so I think the challenge for Victoria now is where do the additional marginal gains come from? How does a great system move towards true excellence by being open to seeing areas that they've overlooked before and being willing to do work that, to be honest, there might be a seven out of 10 at something and say, what would it take us to get to an eight or an eight and a half? What would it take us to get these marginal gains? Because all, all the easy stuff in some ways has already been done. So I think for me, the challenge is how do you keep pushing towards excellence when you're already good? How do you have a commitment that says the best always look to get better? And how do you be willing to look for those opportunities where there are marginal gains? So how would an agile approach support all of this? Well, you can't mandate greatness. You can't mandate excellence. And so I think agile provides a set of values and processes that says we've got some of the best educators on the planet. And what we want to do is empower you with the capacity to think sharply about the areas that we need to work on next. Test best practice evidence approaches, but do it in a way that you're adapting it to work for your local context. And then to start to team in new ways, both within a school, where every school sees themselves as an agile school, a self-improving school, but they're also teaming with the other schools down the road and across the state, where together we're starting to learn about these new approaches that could have an impact. So how can we prepare and enable our educational leaders to lead this work? Is it, is it mindset? Is it behaviours? Is it processes? What needs to happen next? Well, look, I think it's, it, it is all of it. Uh, there's a sense where I talk about agile leadership being a mindset, which is about the stance that we get to take, this dynamic stance that's uh, curious and open to learning and can deal with ambiguity. I think it's a set of skills with the capacity to engage in iterative action, uh, to test and to learn. Uh, and then lastly, I think it's a set of tools. Uh, and a big fan, uh, I'm a big fan, actually, in my work of providing practical visual tools that help leaders um, get their thinking clear and explicit, um, start to move away from meetings where we've just talked for a long time, but where did we progress things? Actually, by using visual tools to capture that thinking, make it open to scrutiny, uh, we try to really find ways to support those leaders to um, get more benefit out of the meetings and the time that they're putting aside for strategic development. It's not just about thinking about the capabilities for leaders. It's also about how do we set up an enabling system? If I want agile leadership, where we've got risk-taking and intelligent learning and the ability to adapt, then I need a system that's enabling that type of activity. I need a system that says we're open to you demonstrating your performance in different ways as you start to articulate the evidence that you can share about what's working, what's not working. We're open to you iterating and adjusting your plan even halfway through a school improvement cycle because, yes, you have learnt now the strategies that will be more effective. And rather than sticking with the plan, we'd love you to update it based on what you've now learned. And I think it's about systems saying how could we enable this type of leadership at the same time as trying to develop those capabilities. So learning sprints, what are they? Well, I've got to tell you, there is no exercise involved, and this is important. Well, that's good news. And um, basically, uh, I was doing a lot of work on leadership development, and I've got a huge you know, academic respect for Vivian Robinson's work on instructional leadership, and that's been absolutely seminal in my own thinking. Of course, in her landmark sort of study uh, on the impact of instructional leaders, she was really pointing to uh, instructional leaders design and participate in professional learning development. And I was often sharing her research with leaders and they were saying, look, I've got it, I get it, but I've allocated the time, I've got teachers coming together, 
that, you know, our collaborative professional learning time isn't getting the impact that we want. And so I started to co-design with a group of schools a process that could work within a typical professional learning community or a faculty team, whatever the time that had been set aside for collaboration for practice improvement, and started to think, could we design a process that was both rigorous, and by rigorous I mean based on evidence and engaging with research, uh, requires us to engage in deliberate practice, helps us check our impact, but it was also human that it kind of worked for overloaded educators that felt practice improvement was just one more thing on their to-do list. And so Learning Sprint sort of emerged out of that. The core focus is around teacher expertise. We say that actually we know that the quality of teaching is the number one factor in supporting additional gains for our students in the classroom. And so if we believe that, we need to invest in our current teachers. Not just tell them to teach this way or pick up this program, but actually esteem and enhance their expertise, their adaptive expertise, their capacity to make the right decision at the right time to help their students make progress in learning. So the learning sprint is about saying, teachers, why don't you work on one very small area of your expertise? Uh, I know you want to go after big things because you care so much about student learning and you want to solve all challenges for all students in all areas. But the best way to do big change is to actually focus on small, critical points that add up over time. So the sprint runs for about one to four weeks. Teachers work in teams to decide what they specifically want to build their expertise in. They go and they deliberately practice in their classroom with their students over one to four weeks, and they try out that, that new approach. And then they come back together as a team after four weeks, review the evidence of their impact, and talk about how they want to transfer some of the things that they've learned into the rest of their craft. And so what is expertise development and how does it drive improvement, particularly in student outcomes? Well, one of the problems with teaching is it's, I'm going to use it again, it's complex. That um, unlike other things, we can't just say, well, if all teachers would just do these five research-based strategies, we would get this improvement. Hey, if that worked, we would already have done it already. Teaching and learning is unbelievably complex. And so what we need in every classroom is not a teacher sticking to the script, but a teacher who has the adaptive expertise to make the right call at the right time. And let me really take this to a, a clear point. Uh, let's take feedback. It says, look, research is pretty clear around feedback having a high impact on student learning. But actually, feedback's not powerful. It's the response to feedback that's powerful. It's whether or not the student does anything with that feedback. I mean, ask any secondary English teacher and how many essays he or she might have marked and how many times they give that feedback and whether or not the kid responds to it. We know feedback is relationally mediated. That is, if I'm not in a strong relationship with you, if you give me feedback, I've probably experienced that as criticism or judgment. It might actually lead me to do less work for you. So I want to say even a, a strategy like feedback, which most people in education would say the research is very strong on, we actually have to think about how that's relationally mediated, uh, how that would actually be implemented in the classroom. So there we need an expert, not just someone who knows they should do more feedback, but actually they know when to use feedback in certain ways when they've developed a relationship with the student to a level where that feedback can actually be acted on. So expertise is about knowing how to um, use your knowledge in an adaptive way in your classroom content to help those students develop. And I think for me, uh, we've lost a focus in our school improvement work on the teachers. We often talk about, oh yeah, teachers are great, teacher quality is so important, and then we jump straight to the students and straight to the student learner outcomes. And I want to say the best long-term hope we have for sustained improvements 
or student learning is to systematically enhance the expertise of our teachers so we have experts who make the right call at the right time in their unique context. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about an example of a learning sprint, sort of what happened and how it worked and the sort of impact it had. Yeah, great. Well, let, let's think about an area like um, secondary writing. Uh, you know, across so many schools, people are working on an area of writing. Teachers say that students um, know content, but they're not demonstrating it in um, paragraphs and extended answers, and it's really frustrating them. So say, OK, well, a group of teachers might come together and they might look at some of the literature about how students learn to write. They might look at some of the literature about strategies that might be successful for supporting uh, students. And they might get down to something really specific, like how to help students respond to challenging verbs like evaluate. And, you know, any teacher uh, listening into this or leader would know how, how much sort of a struggle it is to not just get kids to be able to respond to something that's a describe, but bring their opinion, uh, weight evidence and evaluate. So they might say, look, we're going to run a short sprint and we're going to be particularly focusing on developing our expertise, remember it's about the teacher, in the ability to teach in such a way that students develop this capacity. Uh, one way that we help teachers think about what's worth sprinting on is we say, what do you teach and they don't learn? Because all the teachers say, oh, I've, been I've been teaching this for years. Have they learned it? No. Uh, or sometimes we say, what's essential to learn but hard to teach? And in hard to teach, we're not saying that it's hard to understand. We trust that the teacher gets it, you know, himself or herself. We're saying that you're teaching it and the kids aren't getting it because we never want to waste a sprint. We might only run two a term. Maybe we get six done a year. So we carefully choose something that really matters. Uh, those teachers, after sharing some ideas about what they might have found worked before, also looking at the research, would then find an opportunity in their teaching to try to practice that new idea. Um, here we call this uh, performance practice. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a practice classroom in education. I find it very annoying. It'd be great if we could send all the kids home and then we could have some practice kids. And uh, just like in any sports team, you know, you have to play one, a, you know, one time a week. And so what I'd love is we have a practice field, a practice classroom, and I can just practice this new approach to teaching writing. And then when I feel like I've got it, my kids can come back in the room and then I can do it. But unfortunately, we can't. So what we do in Sprint, we say, choose a slice of your normal teaching that's also going to be your practice. And so maybe there's a year eight class if I'm a secondary teacher, and I'm going to try out this new approach to support students' writing, particularly around responding to these verbs. And I might do that over a couple of weeks, trying it out. I have a check-in meeting once a week with my colleagues. How's it working? Oh, I haven't even done anything. Forgot about that. Hey, don't miss twice. Have another go. And I'm trying out. I'm actually engaged in what the literature would call deliberate practice. Whether or not whether you want to get better at piano, surgery, soccer, there's only one way to develop expertise. It's called de deliberate practice. And so I'm engaged in deliberate practice for four weeks. And then at the end of the four weeks, I stop and I bring some of the evidence of what I've learned about my impact on students. And I meet with my colleagues for a review meeting just for 30 minutes. And we say, well, what seemed to have worked and for which students? And what hasn't worked the way we planned? We think then about what we might want to transfer into future practice. I might want to transfer what I've just done in this sprint into uh, another classroom uh, that I teach uh, into other future practice. And we'll share with each other and say, well, what do we want to do next? And so we call it prepare, sprint, review. Prepare is about choosing something that's worthy of developing our expertise in. Sprint is where we engage in deliberate practice. And review is where we do developmental reflection. We say, what worked? What didn't work? What do we want to take into our future practice? How future ready do you think the educational workforce is in general, given 
you know, your work and your experiences and working with practitioners? Look, I think the core of being future ready is being set up to continuously learn. And I would say uh, one of the biggest challenges right now is not so much with the people who work in the sector, but whether our organisations are set up to allow not just the students to keep learning, but the adults to keep learning. And so really a future education system needs to be saying, yeah, we want students to be future ready and learning. Well, therefore, we're going to need our our teachers to have the capacity to keep learning and having new experiences and challenging their work, our school leaders, and all the way through to upper level system leaders. So I really say, you know, if we're going to be future ready or increasingly uh, be able to be ready for the future that's going to keep changing on us, we need to think about the dynamics of organisational learning and how we're setting up opportunities for the adults to keep learning. Uh, 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 and that doesn't reduce any focus on the students, but I think our long-term commitment to students is going to be best served by making sure that the adults who work in those systems are indeed getting a chance to keep learning and developing. What's needed to ensure that our educational workforce is future ready? What do you think's needed? Well, if the future is going to keep changing on us, I don't think it's a matter of saying, these are the three things that our teachers and leaders need to know and let's train them for it. Actually, the key capability we're going to need to be future ready is the capacity to continuously learn, to continuously improve, whether in consistent contexts or a changing context. So I guess for me, it's about saying, hey, keep the focus on the student learning. They are at the centre of what we do. But we also need to build organisations and processes that put a real focus on adult learning, helping adults to be engaged in continuous improvement, helping them learn about their practice, but also have opportunities to learn outside of the sector so they can bring some of that thinking and that experience back in. And so really, I would say future readiness is about learning. And if we want our schools to be future ready, we need organisations that help our adults to keep learning, improving and growing to be thriving places. And that's why I like the idea of schools need to become agile, agile schools that are self-improving learning organisations. So if someone was listening in today and the concept of agile leadership really resonated for them and they thought, yes, this is, this is something that I want to engage in, where would they start? I think number one is to actually acknowledge that they already demonstrate approaches that are inherently agile. Uh, when they're able to demonstrate some flexibility, when they're demonstrating some sort of responsiveness. I mean, great teaching is very agile. You have a good plan for what you're going to do, and then 10 minutes into a lesson, you realise, well, this isn't going to plan, and now I'm going to adapt and adjust based on the formative evidence that I'm collecting and adjust as we go. So one of the things I want to say to uh, leaders is agile is a new word, perhaps, but the way of working, that flexible and being responsive to human complexity. Hey, great teachers have always done this kind of work. So number one, I'd want to say, you know, acknowledge that actually you've probably demonstrated a lot of these approaches uh, in the classroom and in other parts of uh, school life. After that, I'd say that um, one of the ways of getting into this approach is using uh, what I call just a three-phase change model, which is saying when we first get into some change, we've got to clarify it. What are we trying to do? And then we should incubate it, try it out in a small way, Now we can get it to work in a small way, start to amplify. So I'd say to someone, hey, think about something that you're already trying to lead change in, a change initiative that might have been going for a little while or you're about to step into, and think about those three phases. In the clarify phase, maybe get a colleague together and say, hey, let's try to answer those three questions about what are we really trying to do and how are we trying to do it and how will we know if this is working? And then if you can get a decent enough answer to those, 
give yourself the freedom to incubate for a while. And incubation's about it. Um, being a bit more playful, saying, hey, the world's complex, let's try this out. And for me, incubation is about going much smaller than we normally would. And so um, if Agile seems a bit daunting or, you know, running these experiments, just working with one or two other colleagues, working with one team, don't go over the a whole school straight away and give yourself this freedom of an incubation time. And during that period, whether it's maybe a term or two, try to help it work with the people who would be willing to come with you. Um, this is about saying, hey, look, work with people with higher skill and higher will. It's not because, um, you know, if it works for them, then it definitely will work for everyone else. But hey, if it doesn't work for them, there's no way it's going to work with everyone else. And at the end of incubation, what I'd say is you've got a nice little proof point, a social proof point that your change idea can work in your unique context. Once you've got that, you start to spread it to others. And I use the word of spread rather than scale. You don't scale human things. And so amplification would be about saying, once we've got it working in some pockets, how do we take that knowledge and make it easier for others who might be more naturally resistant to it to pick it up and apply it to see progress? So clarify, incubate, amplify. It wouldn't be a bad way to start, particularly if you can apply it to something that you're already doing. I see some themes here around the power of three. Three questions, three Simple, steps. Simple, Simon. I can't remember more than three things. But to be honest, the work is too complex and so often the frameworks that we're given add to that complexity. So what I try to do on behalf of the profession is to get what I call uh, elegant simplicity. Anything over three, most of the time for busy people, we can't keep in our working memory. So three for me is about distilling things down to the essential bits. If I could get to two, I would. Maybe I haven't got there yet. But it's about being in service to the profession because if you can make frameworks, not simplistic, but elegantly simple, you can hold them in your mind and you can have a shared language together and anything that's too complex. I mean, you just spend your whole time working out what this framework or process is trying to get you to do rather than getting on with the real work. So you talked earlier about Viviane Robinson, who's joined us in one of our podcasts. Who are the other thinkers who inspire your, your thinking, who inspire you in your work that you do? Yeah, so many. So I've got to say practitioners have all the best ideas. So whilst a lot of the names that kind of people know in the educational sector, uh, one of my jobs is to go and be a sticky beak for good ideas, to uh, spend deep time with principals, or system leaders who are doing the work on the ground, and to try to surface some of that thinking uh, back and share it. And so who do I derive inspiration from who've done that? I think Michael Fullan has really set the standard over the last three years of being able to make sense of the complexity. Um, create frameworks that are usable and practical, uh, and then actually turn that into something that helps people both understand the work they're doing and to take better action. Um, but other areas, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of work outside of education, like uh, the Lean Startup and Eric Rees' work. And that was a big inspiration to me uh, in and around this idea of when you're dealing with complexity, don't try to work it all out, get into the world See yourself as a chief scientist where you're running experiments, testing and learning, testing and learning. Um, Tony Bright, who's the head of the Carnegie Foundation uh, for the Advancement of Teaching in uh, the US, uh, he's brought a lot of ideas out of improvement science in healthcare and is really starting to codify those. And I think of my work, I'm definitely drawing on those who are starting to think about improvement science or implementation science perspectives. 
I think Vivian leads the way in kind of that empirical basis. I think Michael has really influenced me in being able to learn from practitioners and synthesize and make sense of complexity. And then outside of education, those who are thinking about how startups run or how healthcare improvement works. And I try to bring those perspectives together and turn it into practical things that are useful for school leaders. So you obviously do lots of work overseas. What are you seeing and, and hearing overseas that's kind of exciting that we can learn from? Yeah, I, I said I'm committed to Australian education. We're not going to copy a Finland or a Canada or a Shanghai or a Singapore. But we can get inspired not so much by the things that they do, but the thinking that led them to do that. At the moment, I'm dedicating most of my international time uh, into Canada and particularly Western Canada. Uh, I love working alongside and learning from Canadian colleagues. I think that Australia and Canada are really great matches to learn from, with, from one another. A similar kind of system histories and setup shared language, at least across Western Canada. And I'm definitely learning a lot there. So in places like British Columbia, I think their curriculum uh, is really leading the world in trying to say, could we pair it back to its essential elements? Could we really embed cross-cutting capabilities? And I think they've really been leading the way in that area. And then in the middle of Canada, uh, across the prairies in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, uh, places, to be honest, often uh, edutourists don't end up going. They sort of go to uh, BC and they pop across to Alberta and Banff and they head into uh, Ontario. But actually, I'm learning a lot in some of those provinces that serve um, the greatest proportion of students living in poverty, uh, particularly in places in Manitoba, cities uh, with very uh, high proportion of First Nation, Métis and Inuit students. And they're saying, actually, we want to apply some of these processes, Simon, not just to innovate into sort of greenfield kind of new approaches, but we want to serve the underserved and we want to support those who have been most disadvantaged. And we want to use these approaches of being more agile, being more iterative, because to be honest, the old plan, implement, evaluate thing hasn't helped us move where we want to. And so we're seeing educators at Mount grab hold of these approaches and try to deploy them really in the sake of lifting equity in the system. So, Simon, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Basto Educational Leadership Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, why not tell your friends and colleagues and join us next time. You'll find episodes on the Basto website and you can listen or subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.